Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The coronavirus pandemic has left millions of workers without a job and the health care that comes with it. Over 3.3 million people filed for unemployment benefits in just one week, a national record. The actual number of jobless people is far higher, since this number does not include self-employed workers, gig workers, undocumented workers, and more. The Federal Reserve is warning that up to 47 million people could lose their jobs during this crisis, which would bring the unemployment rate to 32.2%. The recent Congressional Aid Bill, or Bailout Bill, expands unemployment benefits for up to four months. But other countries are taking a different approach. Instead of putting more government money into unemployment, Governments are nationalizing the payroll and paying workers' salaries directly. If this were done in the U.S., this would also mean keeping people in the health insurance plans that they lost with losing their jobs. Well, to discuss how Congress bailed out big corporations but did not protect workers' jobs, I spoke earlier to Pavlina Sherneva, associate professor at Bard College and author of The Case for a Job Guarantee. Pavlina Sherneva, welcome to Pushback. What is your assessment of the congressional stimulus bill that was passed to respond to the coronavirus crisis? Well, the bill was very big, but I'm afraid it's not going to be enough. And the reason is because we seem to be moving forward with a patchwork of policies rather than a completely comprehensive, much bolder approach to um, prevent the fallout from from this virus. What we are seeing right now is a bill that largely focuses on assistance to firms, small, large corporations, particular sectors, and then income assistance to families in the form of extended unemployment insurance and some cash, additional cash assistance. That's all well and good. Families most definitely need the support, but unemployment insurance, I'm afraid, will not cut it and the corporate bailouts in the form of loans um, might uh, work for a while, for a time. But uh, I'm afraid that some of the problems will come down the line in, in a few months when the strings attached expire. And some of those strings attached are to, to protect some jobs. But um, firms will not be protecting jobs over the long run if we see these extraordinary unemployment numbers and nothing is done to address them. So the current bill, my biggest problem with the current bill is that it doesn't have bold measures to protect jobs at all costs or deal with unemployment that we're already seeing. And um, we will need to do some additional interventions down the line. And what are those interventions? I mean, we have right now, already in one week, there was something like 3.3 million unemployment claims filed. That's unprecedented compared to the rest of the world. What is What are other countries doing that we are not? Yes, exactly. The, the bill was so large. It was $2 trillion. And if you think about what Nordic countries are doing, for example, Denmark is promising to pay 75 to 90% of payroll for jobs that are threatened as a consequence of the virus. Now, I did some calculations, and if the US government were to pay 100% of all wages of all employees in the United States for the next three months, the budget for that policy would be 
$2.5 trillion. So essentially, a little bit over what we have already passed. So in terms of numbers, we could have gone number of ways. And one way would have been to simply ask firms to keep employees on the payroll and provide the sort of subsidy that some of these Nordic countries are providing. Now, there are benefits to this. It is so much better to protect payrolls than try to create jobs once we see unemployment uh, increase. And the acceleration of unemployment has been unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. So in some sense, that ship has sailed, but we can surely protect additional payroll right now. But with, for, for folks who have lost their jobs, and the numbers are truly extraordinary, we will need to do something very big and bold once we are all ready to return to work. And for that, I'm afraid that without big, large public employment programs, we won't be able to address the unemployment problem quickly. And in terms of what led us to let so many people just lose their jobs, uh, but then try to address that issue with by expanding unemployment benefits versus other countries where the government is directly paying people's wages, what sets us apart? What prevented us from following the same uh, approach that other countries are following? Well, I think one is ideology, no doubt. We just don't think in those terms that the government has a direct role to play. And for the most part, we still think in these really sclerotic ways, let's provide the right incentives to the private sector to do the right thing. It's not going to happen. This is a very serious, dramatic situation where a government needs to go directly to the heart of the problem. And if that means protecting jobs, then the government has to do it. Now, what sets us apart is not just ideology, but also the fact that our labor market is so terribly precarious. I mean, we don't have stable jobs with stable contracts. We have a large proportion of the population that is um, self-employed and that employs others in small small firms. And so there, there isn't sort of an obvious employer to go to if we were to implement a policy like that. But we certainly, if we're providing so much assistance to corporations, the government has not just the right, but also the obligation to insist that all of the problems in the labor market are remedied to, to extract certain demands from private employers. And those, in my opinion, should include things like paid sick leave, which we need so much now, paid health care for all workers, provide basic, uh, basic support uh, of, to workers. But, you know, that brings us to also a bigger question that the public sector has enormous responsibilities to shore up the safety net, which it has neglected for a very, very long time. And we are now seeing the multiple repercussions of a broken safety net of a neglected public sector under provisioned critical sectors. Um, and you know, it, it's all, it, it's all um, falling apart right now in a sense. And we need some enormous reforms in the welfare system and in the labor market to create more stable conditions going forward. Okay, I'm gonna put to you what I think would be the right-wing neoliberal talking point in response to your proposals in terms of the government covering people's wages, although it's not what I believe, but I, I'm just curious what your response is. So I imagine the argument would be something like, well, 
we're not giving corporations money because they're going to pay us back as they have before during previous bailouts. And also, if you're asking the government to cover people's wages, and that would require borrowing trillions of dollars, and doing so would, you know, undermine the value of the U.S. currency and encourage inflation. What What is your response to that? Okay, first, people need to realize that the current situation is far more expensive than whatever budget we pass, or whatever measures we take to employ the unemployed. Now. It took us more than 10 years after the great financial crisis to bring unemployment rates down to historic lows. Now, we endured a decade of a lot of pain and distress. States, municipalities lost tax revenue. Uh, unemployed communities are communities that lack critical infrastructure. Folks who have lost their jobs, they are sicker. Um, they go to the hospital a lot more. They make more trips to the doctor take more medication, their children don't do well in school. Now you start adding all of these costs up um, and you see that they're extraordinary and they multiply their social costs, economic costs, and the government is in any case responsible for the unemployed. So you gotta ask yourself, like, what do you want to pay for? Do you wanna pay for an economy that is going to live through a period of time of very high unemployment rates and the Fed is forecasting as, as high as 30%, greater than in the Great Depression. So do we want to go that route? Or do we want to just go the shortest distance to creating jobs? And that is the government doing some of the heavy lifting, cranking up production employment in the interim, and then helping transition, helping people transition to their private sector jobs. Now that is far more better bang for the buck it's going to produce some good, useful public investments that we have uh, neglected for some time. Give people confidence, you know, faith that there is a safe job around the corner so that they can go back to the movies, go back to the restaurant, pay their mortgage. And then um, we can use that kind of policy as sort of the recovery policy and transition people to um, traditional private sector employment. So all around, it's better value for the money. And this notion that somehow if we um, spend so much money that is going to devalue the dollar is really not founded. Um, we already appropriated the budget. This budget would be enough to employ a whole lot of people and address the unemployment situation. Now, what do we want? Do we want to be supporting an economy that might have to slog through unemployment for a very long time? What will be better for the value of the dollar or an economy that is booming, that is growing, that is investing? I think the answer is we want to be paying for production. Well, let me ask you to take us back to the New Deal, because you've written about how we could benefit from what Roosevelt's government did uh, during the Great Depression. Can you talk to, us about, talk to us about how the New Deal and its politics can inform our response today? Yes, this is not a traditional um, recession. It's not a traditional downturn where there's a collapse in demand. We, we have shut down every sector of the economy, and that has happened not just in the U.S., but globally. There isn't really a comparable example. Maybe war is one way to think about it. And what we need to do both today but also tomorrow is mobilize. We know right now there are critical shortages in the economy. There are not enough um, people who are producing masks. 
there is not enough equipment, there are not enough nurses and healthcare staff, sanitation staff, field hospitals. Yes, we've got to stay at home and we have to in, encourage people to stay at home at all costs possible, but there's still work to be done. There are elderly that need to be attended to. There, there is just a lot of a lot of work that still needs to be done. And we gotta um, mobilize the public resources and government resources to carefully think through those investments and put them in place. Right now, states are bidding against each other to get equipment. And we see this with the escalation of prices of ventilators and masks. That really shouldn't be happening. We need the full force of the government behind this mobilization effort today. Now, of course, we still need people to stay at home and social distancing means that those restaurants and other industries will be shuttered for some time. And when we, when economic activity grinds to a halt for a prolonged period of time, it doesn't just kickstart on its own. And in this sense, I say the government will have to do the heavy lifting much like it did during the New Deal, needs to put in the public works, the public investment, the public employment programs. But also the New Deal did something very important. Um, Roosevelt wasn't just satisfied with you know, public works. He asked the big question, how do we ensure economic security going forward? What is missing in our public sphere that provides people with some essentials? And so we put in place social security at that time. We put in place the eight hour working week, um, the eight hour working day. We put in place minimum wages. I mean, we truly transformed the public sector. And right now we're seeing these gaping holes once again. We didn't finish the job. We didn't you know, create all of the economic rights that people um, should be relying on in a civilized society. So this moment is also a critical moment of rethinking the role of government and how we move forward so that when the next crisis comes around the corner, we don't have mass homelessness uh, we don't have mass poverty and all these other problems that multiply these crises. Roosevelt also had the Revenue Act, which taxed the ultra wealthy, I believe, up to 75 percent of their income. In the absence of such a tax today, of a, a major tax on the super rich, can we afford to pay for all the many proposals that you're advocating? Uh, yes, absolutely. Look, uh, FDR didn't tax uh, the wealthy so he can pay for his programs. Um, Roosevelt used um, what we call the public purse or the power of the federal government to issue currency to finance the programs. And so the Federal Reserve and the Treasury ensured that every government contract, every government expenditure was paid. I mean, those institutions are designed for that reason, to make sure that no government checks balance. Now, the tax rate was very important in um, improving the income distribution. I mean, before the New Deal, we had seen runaway inequality of the kind that we had not seen before, but we are seeing now. Um, we, especially in the last 40 or 50 years, we have seen the same kind of extraordinary um, concentration of income and wealth at the top. So high tax rates are very important for addressing the inequality question. And it is a question we've got to grapple with, if not today, very soon, because inequality 
erodes our democracy. It has so many other negative repercussions. But what I would say is that we need to think about these two problems as separate problems. We, didn't, we don't need the wealthy tax revenue to pay for our programs, as we clearly see right now. Congress got together. They voted in a budget. They appropriated um, the, the, the funding. And the Fed and the Treasury will make all payments. Tax collection is, um, is retrieves some of that expenditure back. Uh, however, uh, tax, the, tax, uh, the tax question is a critical question for dealing with inequality, not the ability or the capacity of the public sector to fund its priorities. The congressional bill includes this $500 billion so-called corporate slush fund, where basically Steve Mnuchin can oversee it and do what he wants with it. There was some oversight written into the bill, but President Trump immediately uh, issued a signing statement declaring that he would pretty much ignore the oversight requirements. Can you explain what Mnuchin could do with this and why it is that, in fact, even though it's $500, uh, $500 billion officially, the actual value of it, because of leveraging, could be much more? Okay, so um, the reality is we, we really don't know. This is a black box. What they could do is, of course, provide not just loans, but also grants to companies and corporations um, on whatever basis they decide. Now, before the, the pandemic, we already knew that there was a big corporate debt bubble in the economy. Many economists were anticipating that there will be some correction, euphemistically, but there may be, there may be a, a, a serious economic downturn because of this corporate debt bubble. So what is happening is that there's already underlying weakness in the economy. The financial sector might be fragile, might be close to illiquid or even insolvent on its own. So this slush fund could be used as a rescue of a financial sector that was weak irrespective of the pandemic. And, you know, this is a real, a real problem. We need to be sure that the corporate sector, the financial sector, does not add additional risks to the economy. We're already dealing with a pandemic risk. So it would be uh, truly yet another uh, terribly important and missed moment to zero in on those firms, on those financial and corporate firms, to see what exactly are they doing that are putting that that is putting them in this fragile position to reform them, to put in place the kind of regulation that makes the entire economy robust. So um, we tried to do this during the great financial crisis. People were very unhappy because it was quite clear that the bailouts went to the financial sector as you know, euphemistically Wall Street, not Main Street. And even with these additional provisions to households and families, I feel that um, it's almost they're there to appease uh, families rather than to seriously look at transforming the economy and the labor market and the corporate sector to make a more robust and stable economy. Finally, to enact New Deal style proposals and the other measures that you and other economists have outlined, there will need to be some activism at a certain point, but... Right now, literally, that is physically impossible if we are to contain the coronavirus. Do you have any thoughts on that, on the political difficulty that lies ahead in terms of pushing for progressive 
policies that could rescue the economy, but at the same time respecting the requirements that we all stay indoors to protect public health. Yes. You know, you could ask the question, how do we do Occupy Wall Street 2.0 in an age of social distancing? Look, I think um, there are there are communities, there are organizations, people are already mobilizing, whether it is um, through online connections, whether it is through open source software, etc. And um, there is a, a movement that began 10 years ago of of um, community groups, of um, economists, of, of public uh, figures who understand that this economy does not work for all and it does not work well and it is becoming increasingly uh, more precarious and endangers human life. We have looming problems ahead of us, Not we haven't even mentioned the climate crisis and we just cannot keep the status quo. So. In terms of the political agenda, I think that um, you know those on the ground organizations are not going to stop their work, but direct action is going to be a little more difficult today. Although I do not, I don't think that it will be completely um, out of the question in months to come, and it might actually uh, be accelerated because the current measures will not stem the enormous pain that's coming down. We will find ourselves having to pass probably another budget and it better be um, one that truly rethinks uh, what the public sector must do. I, I worry that under the current administration there's very little chance of that happening, which means that the pain will be prolonged. And, 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 and that unfortunately will hope, you know, will give rise to more, more political activism. But we, uh, we cannot let a crisis go to waste. And if we did not push the envelope forward after the Great Recession, we certainly have a responsibility to do it now. Pavlina Treneva, Associate Professor at Bard College, author of The Case for a Job Guarantee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.